As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Matters of Life and Death. Um, As always, I'm Tim White and I'm joined by my dad, Dr. John White. Hi, John. Hi, it's good to be here. And again, as previously, we're sitting side by side instead of speaking over the internet. Yep. Today we wanted to pick up on a really tragic case that lots of you will have heard about that's been in the news a lot over the last weeks and months, and that's the story of Archie Battersby. Um, it's a really sad story of a, of a 12-year-old boy who um, was the subject of a very bitter, contested legal battle after he ended up in a, in a coma in hospital, and the doctors wanted to, to turn off his life support, and his family fought for many months through the courts to prevent that um, uh, and in the end, the courts ruled that the doctors could withdraw his life support and he and he passed away in, in August. Um, it raises a lot of really fascinating and challenging ethical questions. Um, but uh, I guess we want to acknowledge at the beginning, John, that this is also a story that's deeply personal, deeply painful. Yes, it is. I, I think that so many of the major ethical and legal dilemmas which we face in modern medicine is actually, they they start with human pain. They start with people with tragic and uh, devastating uh, tragedies. And and Archie's sad story is a classic example. And so I think we must really be careful not to just reduce this to a kind of abstract, philosophical, theological, ethical uh, discussion and constantly bear in mind that we're dealing with real people and and an ultimate tragedy any for any parent uh, to uh, face this sudden shock of a of a much loved child who then appears to have been attempting some kind of experiment with putting a ligature around his neck and was found hanging from the neck at home and uh, and who was subsequently um, resuscitated and waiting for the ambulance to turn up and uh, CPR continuing, and then the ambulance continuing, and and so on. What that very it brings a sort of a shock of horror to any parent's uh, heart to think that they might be in that situation. That's right. I mean, it's almost unimaginable, isn't it? And and so just to recap the story for people who haven't been following it too closely, as you say, Archie was at home uh, in April, and he was um, found by his mum uh, to be unresponsive because he had um, yeah, tied something around his neck. We believed it was maybe part of an online prank or a challenge, we're not sure why. 
Um, he was rushed to hospital um, and quickly was put on, on mechanical ventilation um, and, and other life support measures. Um, but quite quickly, the hospital team concluded that he was probably brain dead, uh, he could not recover, and actually it was right to, to withdraw treatment. But his family strongly resisted this conclusion, believing that, or even hoping and praying maybe for a miracle, that, that he could um, come, back, come back to them. And, and this basically led gradually over the course of days and weeks to, to the hospital in the end, going to, applying to the, the courts for permission to, to withdraw treatment, or at first permission to test his brainstem activity to see if he was really brain dead. Yeah, so what, what had happened was that the blood supply and oxygen supply to the brain had been cut off for a long period. It was not possible to know exactly how long it was, but it was a period of probably 15, 20, 30 minutes or more. And tragically, when that happens, a whole series of damaging chemical reactions are started in the brain, uh, which leads to irreversible damage. And then the brain starts to swell and um, the blood supply to the brain is increasingly impaired. And uh, it became apparent to the doctors really very early on that, that irreversible brain damage had happened and that his, his uh, life was only being sustained by uh, massive intensive care support. And, um, and, and so one of the, uh, there are many complex and, and, and difficult issues that this case, is, case uh, raises, but a, a fundamental question is about the definition of death and um, it, it may be worth just going, having a quid aside on that and, and, and just looking at, at a modern understanding of, of what death um, actually involves. Uh, so historically, you know, all the way up until the 1950s, 1960s, uh, there was only one way to die and that was by your heart stopping. It was, it, it was recognized that uh, permanent cessation of the circulation was uh, the definition of death um, and there really was no debate about that among doctors and um, the doctors diagnosed death one of the foundational things was listening for a long time feeling for major pulses ensuring that the heart had stopped and that once you, you look for other signs as well such as the fixed and dilated pupils and lack of response to stimulation but it's really permanent cessation of the circulation which underlay the definition of death. And I suppose that begins to change in the last kind of half century or slightly longer once new techniques come around where we can actually start effectively kind of keeping people alive mechanically, uh, keeping their hearts pumping and their lungs going even after they're, they're unable to do that by themselves. That's right. And so it's really in the 1960s that uh, the techniques for uh, keeping people alive mechanically using uh, life support technology and particularly mechanical ventilators, uh, giving intravenous uh, drugs to maintain the circulation and so on. Uh, as this is uh, developing, uh, it's becoming increasingly apparent that uh, it's possible to sustain biological life um, even when a very severe illness and irreversible damage uh, to the brain and to other organs has occurred. And so there was continuing debate going on between doctors in particular and, and other experts about 
what to do in this situation because if we're able to keep the heart beating uh, indefinitely uh, does it make sense to say that this patient it's only death can only occur when eventually all the organs despite carrying on maximal intensive care all the organs um, have have permanently deteriorated and so what we're really saying is is that historically deaths was kind of obvious or at least it was a pretty black and white issue and suddenly the medical profession and kind of everyone related with that has suddenly trying to work through this kind of gray area because what does it mean to be dead is no longer as obvious as it once was now that we could really in some instances keep people kind of going indefinitely that's right and, and it's one of the fascinating recurring themes which which uh, you see in in the history of medicine and that is every time medical technology advances and becomes capable of some new intervention it seems to raise some of these age-old questions about what it means to be human and here is a classic example where we're all having to think much more deeply about what we actually mean by death precisely because the technology is now capable of keeping someone alive and so uh, to begin with it was really the ability to to keep people alive there's no doubt also that the possibility of organ transplant uh, be, was also in the mix here because um, questions about the the uh, the fundamental rule behind organ transplantation has always been the the so-called dead donor rule that that organs can only be transplanted uh, and particularly an organ such as the heart or the liver, which uh, once the patient is dead. Um, and if the patient is not dead, then organs cannot be transplanted. But once some new definition of death uh, emerged, and this was really started in the 1960s in the, in the USA, um, this, a new concept came, and that was that, that in addition to death due to the uh, circulatory death there was another possibility that death could occur by neurological criteria and and the concept came that, that if there was irreversible and permanent loss of all brain function so if the brain function became such that it would it, it stopped working and it could never there was irreversible loss of, of, of integrated neurological function that that too was was would could be defined as death and so in the USA, the concept became then of, of brain death, that, that the brain was effectively dead. And so even if the heart is still beating, even if the ventilation is maintaining the, the, the lungs, even if the patient is still able to have metabolic function and excretory function, if the brain is irreversibly damaged and, and not functioning, then the definition of brain death was, was made in the USA. And I suppose lying behind that, maybe almost unspoken, is a philosophy or a set of values that says without a brain you can't live or without a brain functioning normal life is not worth living. I mean, has there been kind of criticism of that saying that kind of reduces human beings simply to kind of brains in jars and that actually the brain is just one organ of many and why should we give it this kind of priority and this precedence? So it's very interesting to, to see that once this had been proposed, this new definition of brain stem or brain whole brain death had been uh, had been proposed, the vast majority of 
ethicists, doctors, philosophers, and indeed Christian thinkers accepted this new understanding of death. And, and therefore they did implicitly accept that the brain and the integrated function of the brain was absolutely central uh, to our understanding of what life uh, means. Over the subsequent years, since the 1960s, there has been an increasing tendency among some theologians and ethicists to start to question this, this concept and say, as you say, are we really valuing the brain? Why should it be that the brain as, is the single organ that we regard as essential to, to life? And um, is this, is, surely in, in biblical thinking, it's the whole body, not just the brain, which is important. I think everyone can understand that if a person, you know, couldn't, if their heart would fail naturally we can give them a pacemaker or some other kind of artificial intervention that keeps their heart beating and clearly that person is the same person they're still alive and they could live for many years and that people feels intuitively makes a lot of sense but people rail against the idea that maybe we could um we could replace the brain or, or if the brain is not working they could just lie there in a bed but we could keep them we could keep them alive for years people feel uncomfortable about that is that simply because that we do christians or otherwise implicitly kind of reify put on a pedestal our thinking capacity and say perhaps in a kind of unbiblical way if you can't think and you can't rationalize then it doesn't matter that the rest of your body works fine you are effectively dead well and i think these are profoundly difficult and complicated questions but i think there's no doubt that we understand much more of the way that the human body works compared to previous generations and there you know if, if you go back to biblical times, uh, it was thought that the, the principal seat of the, uh, of the person was in the central organs. It was in the heart, but it was also included in the bowels. Uh, it was included in, in, in the core organs. That's, that's, that's the core of where we are. I mean, many people thought the brain was a, a relatively minor and unimportant organ. It's, it's really only... Uh, with the development of modern science that we now understand the central importance that the brain does play. Uh, and it's not just in terms of the rational thinking, because it's, it's the brain which plays the role of integrating, ho holding together all the other organs within the body. And therefore, tragically, when as a case, as in uh, Archie's case, once the brain has become irreversibly and catastrophically damaged, what you can see that bit by bit all the other organs of of the body are starting to uh, disintegrate their function is deteriorating because this central integrative role of, of the brain is lost so as far as i understand it the, the us developed this concept of whole brain death but actually the uk has a slightly different approach to determining death and they actually or doctors are kind of told in good practice guidelines that you can determine death simply if the brain stem shows no activity. Could you just explain the difference between those two approaches? Yes, it, it's, it's quite a sort of complex and technical area, but, but what has tended to happen in the US is, is um, in order to determine that the brain as a whole has died, is that in addition to doing clinical tests, you, it, the general practice is to do a whole number of other investigations, including electrical tests, uh, sometimes measuring the blood flow to the brain and so on. And, and it's by showing that you get these very abnormal tests which show if effectively that brain function is very severely impaired or is absent, then you can use that for defining death. In the UK, 
um, the experience and, and the standard approach has been that, that it's not essential to do all these other tests because one, by doing very careful clinical examinations, uh, we are able to determine whether or not there is any kind of neurological function going on within the brain simply by clinical examinations. And provided those clinical tests are done very carefully and done independently by skilled, um, skilled neurologists or clinicians, then um, it is possible to determine that if there's absolutely no response to these tests, then all the evidence is that is that recovery is impossible, that that, con that consciousness is absent, and that uh, there the effectively irreversible um, uh, damage to the brain has occurred, and so part of the controversy that happened in um, in Archie's case, uh, the case of this tragic boy, was that the doctors wanted to carry out this set of tests that includes things like seeing if the, the child responds to uh, stimulation, if there's any evidence of pain, checking in the eyes, seeing whether the pupils respond to light, checking whether particular reflexes in the cranial nerves are present, and and in particular then disconnecting the patient from the ventilator for a number of minutes and to see whether or not the the, uh, the respiratory movements will commence and it, if all of those things are negative if there's absolutely no uh, response in any of those then it's possible and they have to be repeated the tests repeated on more than one occasion by independent observers if you meet all those criteria then in the UK the definition of death is met. But when the doctors suggested to the parents that that's what they like to do, uh, unusually, the parents actually refused permission for the doctors to carry out those tests to see whether or not Archie met these criteria for brainstem death. And you've probably, in your own medical practice as a doctor, probably had some similar or related things where you've had to kind of have difficult conversations with parents of children and ask to do examinations have you is it common for parents to disagree or do most of the time are parents and doctors on the same page well i think this is a fundamental issue in this case and i think we're probably going to come back to this but tragically it seems that from very early on uh, maybe within the first day or two of the uh, child arriving in hospital for full life support to be instituted and so on it seems that sadly there was a breakdown in trust between the parents and the clinical team and increasingly, the clinical the the parents came to the position where they they just they genuinely didn't believe that the doctors and nurses, the clinical team caring for their child, were genuinely trying to do the best for their child. They be, they became increasingly suspicious, uh, and and therefore, whenever the doctors suggested doing something, instead of normally, I mean, my experience as a as a doctor is that you know is that when you carefully suggest that you want to carry out this test and this is the reason for doing it, it's pretty unusual for parents to say, oh, no, 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 I don't want you to do any of those tests, doctor. Uh, but I think it does demonstrate that, sadly, right from fairly early on, uh, there was a, a very major breakdown of trust. And that's how they end up in court in the first place, isn't it? Because the, the hospital in the end says, well, we, we want to carry out this test of Archie's brainstem to determine if he is dead. And if we can't get the permission of the parents, they basically apply to the court to override that and give them permission to do it anyway. That's right. So the way that the law works in the UK is that whenever we're 
with caring for a child, providing medical treatment, uh, it, there has to be agreement and collaboration between the parents and the doctors as, as to what is in the child's best interests. So the law right from the beginning says that both doctors and parents have a duty in law to act in their children's best interest, to do the best for their child, to do everything that is going to promote the child's welfare and, um, and, and functioning and development and so on. And provided that doctors and parents can agree together on, on what is in their child's best interests, then the law courts say, we don't want to be involved. Uh, we, by and large, doctors and parents are able to agree together on what to do for the best for their children. And it's only in the relatively rare cases where there's a complete irreconcilable breakdown between the parents and the doctors about what is the right thing to do, that at that point, the law courts say, well, there has to be some mechanism to break the deadlock where there is irre irreconcilable disagreement. And therefore, the only way we can break the deadlock is to use the whole panoply of, of the law and, and of the family or the high courts, which then see these cases. Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. And so the judge basically hears evidence from the medical side about what they found, what the reasons for wanting to withdraw treatment or in this case do the brainstem test. Um, and then they hear from the, the, the parents and the family and, and their views. And, and you can read the judgment. This has been published online. We'll put a link to it in the description, which, which shows how the judge kind of very methodically and carefully went through all the different evidence from both sides, Was didn't kind of prioritise or give higher weight to, to doctors over the parents, heard, heard their views. And then the test is, what do I believe, having heard all this evidence, is in the best interests of Archie? Yeah, now interestingly, um, the, the British system says we don't only have a legal team for the doctors and a legal team for the parents. We actually, the court will then appoint a separate legal team precisely for the child. Um, and, and so there's a department of, a, of the official guardians uh, who, so that there was a court appointed a legal team specifically for the child, which mm. is separate from the uh, parents, and and the idea is that the child there is somebody in the court to to represent the child and say I'm here to speak on behalf of the child. Yes, the parents want this and the doctors want this, but actually I'm here to speak on behalf of the child. Mm. And that's I guess part of the effort is to try and is to try and unpick what exactly is 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 the best for the child. The child Archie obviously couldn't tell us his own view because he was unconscious and possibly brain dead. Um, but it's, but I guess implicit is that, is the idea that the parents, the parents' view of Archie's best interest might actually conflict with Archie's own best interest, which I think some people will be slightly surprised to hear. I think there's a lot of a, an assumption that, well, of course, when someone is underage or unconscious, we, we, we go to their parents to find out what's, what's right for them. And actually the British just legal system, or the English and Welsh legal system to be precise, says, that's not quite right. The parents' view is very important, but it's not absolutely determinative. Yes, I mean, sadly, um, we all know, both as a society and as doctors, that 
parents can't always be relied on to make absolutely the best decisions for their children. And um, what what happens, what what has evolved is that parents have a, have a degree of discretion. I mean, a, a classic example is, is about immunization. Should a parent decide whether or not to get their child immunized? Or is that such an important thing that the state has to say, you will immunize it? Well, interestingly, there are different, uh, across the world, different states have come to different decisions on this. But in the UK, we actually value parental uh, rights so highly that we, we say we will not force parents to immunize their children, even though all the evidence is it is in their child's best interests. Uh, but if, if the parents very strongly feel we don't believe in immunization and so on, we will actually allow, we will try to persuade parents, but we will not force them. So we give them a certain amount of, of, of um, you know, st- the, the, the state society gives parents, in fact, uh, you know, think about issues like immunization, not only immunization, you think about education, you think about, you know, how the child is brought up, what the child is taught, all these kind of things. Uh, there's a, a great deal of latitude. However, there is a limit where the state and the limit comes where a decision of the patient, a decision of the parent is going to cause substantial harm to the child. At that point, when it appears that what, what parents are deciding is has the possibility of causing substantial harm, at that point, the state feels we must intervene in order to protect the interests of the child. And so in this particular kind of case, Yes, we we understand the parents are desperately trying to do the best for Archie. We understand parents are not in any kind of way being malevolent. But it, is it still possible that the the longing and the desires of the patients might actually do harm to the child? And I guess that comes on to, to the next kind of really critical um, clash of values, um, theologies even at this case, which is some people might find it hard to understand how allowing Archie to die could possibly be in his best interest? Is that not causing him the ultimate harm? Well, of course, this is an issue, again, which technology has risen. As we have become better and better at keeping uh, patients alive, and in particular babies and uh, young children, um, normally, of course, the right thing to do is to do everything a child can keep keep a child alive. But increasingly, my own experience as as a consultant working in this area as a paediatrician and caring for very young babies is that there is a pos- there is a time when it, it's possible for um, the whole life support um, and intensive care to actually to, to cause damage it's possible for it to become a kind of monster and if I can just tell a completely different story a true life story which illustrates this and which I remember when I first read it it just it so struck me. So the story here was of an of a of an infant uh, who was a few months old, I think six nine months old, who had a terrible accident at home. Who um, I think swallowed a balloon, got very short of oxygen, uh, was rushed into hospital, was res- resuscitated. But again, rather as in Archie's case, it sadly became apparent that uh, irreversible damage had occurred, and. After a few weeks, the doctors told the parents that their child would never survive, was, there was irreversible brain damage. And the parents asked the doctors, well, in that case, we would like you to switch off the machinery and allow our baby to die uh, with, in peace and dignity. 
And the doctors said, no, we can't do that. It's against the law. We have to provide intensive care. And the story was that this went on week after week. The doctors, the parents would come and visit. The doctors uh, said, no, uh, nothing's changed. Yes, you're, the, the baby is not going to survive. No, we're not allowed to switch off the life support treatment. The, the parents carried on asking. Eventually, the father appeared on the intensive care unit carrying a gun. And the eyewitness accounts say that he held up the staff and he said, I'm not here to hurt anyone, but I just want to, um, I, I want to do the best for my child. And it's, and it's said that he holding a gun, holding the staff at bay, disconnected the life machine, sport machinery, and then cradling his son in his arms, um, he died, the child. And then at that point, the police had been called. So armed police are now present with their guns. Um, the once the the father was confident that the child had actually died, he then handed over the gun and was taken away and charged with homicide. Wow. And just hearing that heartrending story, I mean that's a, an extreme example, but it just shows how what is supposed to be all about doing good and bringing health and restoring children and people to health can actually turn into a sort of strange kind of monster, mm -hmm. and therefore. We have to learn when to say enough is enough. There has to be a point at which we have to be able to switch off the life support machinery. And yet a lot of Christians would disagree quite strongly with that idea. And they would say, hang on, life is not really for us to decide when it starts or when it ends. That's in God's hands. And surely by withdrawing feeding or ventilation or other life support we're saying we know what's best and we're going to decide that this person needs to die now whereas you know you often hear the argument that that, sh that decision should really be left for god what if god wanted to do a miracle we need to give space for god to, to be the ultimate determinant of who lives and who dies a and by kind of grabbing this power for ourselves and saying mm, no i think we know better we're going to end life support that is that is contradictory to kind of the the kind of uh the christian ethic of saying life is is a gift from god to give and take away as he chooses and of course you can see at least superficially how that seems that sounds does that make sense but if you dig down a bit more deeply it really doesn't make a great deal of sense because if you are going to say that ultimately we have to leave all these decisions to God, then really you wouldn't start the medical enterprise at all. Why on earth are we giving penicillin? Because, you know, maybe it was God's plan for that child to die from a pneumonia. And as soon as you intervene uh, uh, with any kind of medical intervention, you're actually playing God, quotes. You are intervening, you are changing the direction. So if you would take an extreme view that God we must allow God to make the decisions. You would say the entire healthcare enterprise was deeply misguided. And yet nobody seriously says that. Everybody can see how actually God uses um, the whole medical enterprise. God uses penicillin. God uses intensive care units to, uh, to bring good and blessing and healing. But these human interventions, which are which are part of the way that we serve God and, and, and achieve um, the goodness and his ultimate aims within the world, they need to be done with great care and responsibility. And just because we've started doing a treatment, we, sh sh we must also have the right to say we must stop a treatment. I, I feel very strongly that um, 
once we take on any responsibility to intervene, we must also have the the right to, to stop a treatment. I mean, it's ludicrous to think once we've switched on a life support machine, however much damage it's doing, whatever evil consequences are, no, 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 we mustn't, we must never now stop it because that would be quite wrong. So, But is there not a distinction between treatment which extends life, like penicillin, and treatment which shortens life, such as withdrawing a feeding tube? I mean, if we see death as the kind of enemy in Christian thinking, then then there's a huge distinction between penicillin, which is using artificial means to which, you know, God has given us to to fight and resist death versus this. What we're talking about here is using artificial means to hasten death. Well, not to hasten death. No. So so the what what is clear uh, both in UK law and in uh, Christian thinking, at least according as I understand it, is that using uh, any form of intervention, medical treatment, technology in order to kill or in order to accelerate or hasten death is is wrong. And certainly that's not what the case of what was being proposed in uh, Archie's case. And it's certainly not the case where I personally have been involved in similar cases in, in withdrawing life support treatment. My the intention when you uh, stop life support treatment is not to bring death. The intention is to stop torturing the patient to no event, to no uh, to to no avail. And we've talked about this before, but the essence of of ethical medical treatment is to be constantly balancing the benefits and the burdens of medical treatment. And medical treatment which is purely burdensome, which is damaging, which is causing distress, which is causing pain, which is causing tissue damage, but which is doing no benefit, that's uh, the point at which I think it's ethical and right to actually stop treatment that, where the burdens exceed the benefits. And in that sense, we say actually there is a Christian tradition that sees death as, yes, something that Jesus came to kind of free us from, but it's not it's not it can sometimes be a mercy and that's true of maybe the very elderly and we think you know it's not wise if you're you know in your 90s approaching death to pursue every last possible form of treatment that might extend you by a few more days we say actually god doesn't want you to resist death at every possible step sometimes death is a mercy and it's and and maybe that's also true in the cases of tragically younger children god doesn't want archie to die at age 12 but at the the position they found himself in with his his brain function nil uh, uh, his organs starting to fail death at that point could have been a mercy Yes, I think that's right. And of course, again, one, one understands the desperation for parents who want to cling on to any possible hope and who think, you know, perhaps God's going to do a miracle. And yes, the doctors say there's irreversible damage, but is it possible that they're wrong? And, and so there is this desperation to want uh, to, to just carry on. But my experience is if you've been able to develop a, a, re, a relationship of trust between the doctors and the parents, that eventually parents can come to accept that just continuing on and on and on particularly as they can see that the child is just deteriorating things are getting worse and so on that actually the right thing to do is to say enough is enough and to see that death can become a strange kind of of healing that 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 from a Christian perspective, we see physical, biological death as a great evil, but not the greatest evil. There are some things 
that can be even worse than death and that death uh, with the right kind of support with with love with care with palliative care and so on death can turn from being this terrible enemy into a gateway into into the new healing and the only healing that Archie bless him is ever going to receive or could ever receive is not going to be in this earth and it and and we pray and long that, that Archie would be able to receive healing in the new age we don't know what the future is we never know we never know what it is but we trust and hope that by God's grace Archie can receive healing through the gateway of death we're running out of time, but just lastly, I wanted to touch on one final point before we draw this part of our conversation to a close. I think a lot of Christians instinctively feel like I'm already opposed to euthanasia and assisted dying. We as Christians are supposed to be pro-life. And therefore that leads them to think, well, I can't be in favour of of allowing this the doctors to 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 kill this child or to or to let this child die. Do you think it's those are different issues? Can we can we be simultaneously very anti medical professionals view you know the kind of medical professions drifting towards assisted dying and yet say actually the doctors in this case got it absolutely spot on well i think we we do need to keep a very clear conceptual difference between withdrawing and withholding treatment that is bringing no benefit versus giving intentional treatment which is intended to kill or intended to destroy and I think one of the sad things that happened in this case is that in, in Archie's case is in the public discussion there seemed to be some confusion you know it, it was said publicly that this this was equivalent to a euthanasia or, or words to that extent and that therefore there, there comes a kind of blurring in the public mind whereas as far as I'm concerned there is an absolute distinction between withdrawing treatment in, in a patient who is already dying I mean Archie was was either I mean as we discovered there was this question about whether he met the criteria for death but he was dying he was dying sadly from the moment that they started trying to do resuscitation and that all that um, uh, months of intensive care did was prolong the process of dying um, so there's a stopping treatment and allowing quotes that nature to take its course allowing death to occur is very different from coming along with to a patient who is not dying and injecting a chemical whose sole purpose is to bring instantaneous death those two processes I think are really quite different and I as a Christian would strongly support uh, withholding and withdrawing treatment in a patient who is dying like Archie uh, but I would strongly oppose intentional killing which is what assisted, so-called assisted dying and the legalization of assisted dying is intended to achieve. Right well we've run out of time for, the, for this week's episode um, thanks John it's been a really interesting discussion and we're going to pick this up in, in, a, in a part two next week where we're going to kind of zoom out a little bit and talk about some of the bigger, bigger kind of sociological changes at work in the Archie Battersby case and, and some of the similar cases we've seen in the UK in recent years uh, some of the roles around kind of medical paternalism and social media and kind of culture wars how that's all bleeding together in, in, this, in this way. Uh, so do, do do look out for that. Um, but otherwise, as always, uh, you can find more information and, and resources to kind of stimulate your thinking at John's website. That's um, johnwyatt.com. 
uh, and you can get in touch with us. We'd love to hear what you think about this issue. It raised a lot of um, uh, feelings on both sides of the aisle, I think. Uh, you can email us molad, M-O-L-A-D, at premier.org.uk. Otherwise, uh, we'll speak to you next week. Goodbye. You've been listening to Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. 